Hey y'all, welcome back to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast dedicated to talking shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. I am so stoked for today's influencer. There are few in this industry who have so eloquently earned the degree of respect that this woman has. Commonly referred to as the godmother of completions, her career has pioneered the way for so many, and she is still on an epic tear. From field to labs and lecture halls to some of the most prestigious corner offices, she has seen and done it all. Her expertise are built not only on ideas and intuition, but common sense, reality, and results. If you have anything to do with production, completion, or field optimization, sit down, shut up, and listen, because I am going to speak to the mastermind of the secret sauce. Dr. Jennifer Miskimmons, thanks so much for joining the Crude Audacity today. Uh, thanks for having me. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> Told you. She didn't cry. <laughs> so... Just so you are aware, in preparation for today's interview, I began to categorize some of your research. And here are some of the uh, categories I came up with. Damage factor analysis, frac fluid evaluation and mechanical properties. Spacing, propent placement, microseismic and tracer efficiencies. Economics for formation and cost of accuracy. Refracking, rock characterization, propent, stress shadowing, Packer-induced stresses, waterless fracks, what the hell is that? Propent transport, uh, completion effectiveness and modeling, cryogenic fracks, uh, frac cleanup. Oh my God, common mistakes, misfires. I stopped categorizing after 110 papers. Oh, <laughs> like where do you find time to do this? This is insane because on top of all of this, you are now interim department head at CSM your director of FAST, which for those who don't know, is Fracture Acidizing Stimulation Simulation Technology Consortium. Your co-director of the Center of Earth Materials Mechanics and Characterization. You're still active in SPE because you were international on the International Board for Completions uh, Technical Director. And aren't you an AIM trustee as well? Yes. Um, so I, I don't get a, some days I don't get a lot of sleep. Um, but. <laughs> You learn to uh, categorize, you learn to work on things, you learn to delegate a lot. Well, I want to hear the whole story. How you started, I mean, back to Montana, kind of the whole story. What did you do to not only decide to enter the petroleum industry, because obviously you have to be a little nuts to make that decision, but how did you get to and earn all these titles and honestly manage your way up into all these responsibilities? We need to know it all. We give us all the details. We like details here. Okay. So, um, I, so I grew up mostly in Wyoming. Um, I went to Montana College of Mineral Science and Technology, mm. as it was known at that point in time. Uh, that's where you I got my bachelor's. Mines. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so I, I laughed because uh, they were ore diggers or are ore diggers also. So I figured I'd just change colors, but not um, not mascots. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I actually found my way into petroleum a little bit by accident. Um, I joke that it was a volleyball scholarship that actually got me into petroleum engineering. How did that happen? Uh, I'd never heard of Montana College of Mineral Science and Technology, <laughs> but they, uh, the volleyball coach called me up and said, um, I got a full ride for you if you'll come up here and play. 
And I said, well, that's a lot better offer than I've gotten some other places. Yeah. So, you know, if it was engineering, I, I knew I wanted to go into engineering. I knew I was good at uh, science and math. Um, I had parents that were very supportive of doing whatever I wanted to do. Uh, so they never batted an eye, you know, sending their, their daughter off to become an engineer. Neither one of them are, so they weren't quite sure what was going what on. What did they do, actually? Uh, my mom's a teacher, and uh, my dad is an accountant. Oh, so. so still kind of still on the prestigious side. <laughs> um, definitely, yeah. I think I get some of the teaching from my mom, but uh, <laughs> de- definitely some uh, some math orientation there, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, went up to to tech and um uh, quite honestly they made me select an advisor and uh i just kind of checked off a box that said petroleum engineering because it sounded interesting i had no, you had I- no idea what it no, was no i had no idea what oh it my was God. i had no idea what it was so talk about um, fate yes yeah, <laughs> um that that's a it, truly there's there's a lot of fate I'm, I'm a true believer in hard work and a little bit of luck uh you know it doesn't ever hurt by any means so um, I still wasn't even sure. That was my freshman year. I still wasn't even sure I was going to go into petroleum. And then uh, I worked an internship for Marathon Oil Company mm-hmm. and uh, fell in love with it. What were you doing as the internship? Um, I was in a field called Pitchfork, which is in Wyoming. It's outside of Matitsi, Wyoming. which is, I know, you know that field. That huge, <laughs> huge uh, town of Matitsi. But, uh, yeah, so Pitchfork, um, if you're not familiar with it, is actually really close to... Uh, the mountains south of Yellowstone mm-hmm. uh, National Park, and it was a beautiful place to live and work. Um, I worked outside for three months. I worked with a bunch of uh, field guys, that, and they were all guys at that point, um, that were just wonderful. They treated me like uh, you know their kid sister and kept me out of trouble when I was trying to get into trouble. And um, <laughs> And uh, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of, I guess uh, at that point, I, I worked mostly with the well testers. Um, so went around and, and did build up tests, which I had absolutely no idea what those were at that point in time. And uh, some people still don't. It's yeah, yeah well, it's still true. it's fine. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you know, it's, it was fun because I, I learned. Well, you know, the thing I interest that was probably most interesting looking back later was you learned so many of the ins and outs of what happened in the field. Oh, yeah. That you learned whether to trust or not trust your numbers later mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. right? So when I eventually became an engineer, which I, I did eventually go to work for Marathon, um, it was it was pretty important to kind of get a, a quality control feel for where some of those numbers were coming from. So you have this first internship, and mm-hmm. did that sort of seal the deal for you? Um, yeah, uh, it did. Um, I, like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I realized that at that point in time, petroleum engineering could be a job where I could mm-hmm. you know, work outdoors if I wanted to. I could yeah. also work indoors. Um, you know, the location that I, I had the opportunity to work in, like I said, probably influenced it a little bit. It was pretty nice. <laughs> um, grizzly to, bears. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of grizzly bears, a couple mountain lions we saw that year. So, um, it was, uh, it, it probably definitely had a, a pretty big influence. So, you know, I went back, I mean, I hadn't had a petroleum engineering class yet. So I went back to tech and took a couple of petroleum engineering classes and said, yeah, this, this kind of feels right. What was your so, GPA? Uh, coming out of undergrad was a three, seven, oh, I think, or something like that. Oh my God, that's just not fair. So <laughs> pr- probably, probably isn't compared to some, uh, I, I, you know, the social life in college, I enjoyed that quite a bit too, so... All you smart people out there, I can't stand y'all. Okay, so you 
graduate and you mm-hmm. immediately go start working for marathon i did um so i actually started working very close to uh, where i had that internship I, okay. I worked in a field called grass creek yeah i know that one too okay so grass <laughs> creek is a little bit more south of that it's um i guess uh, just north of the wind river mountains outside of thermopolis um so i worked there uh i worked i actually worked some smaller fields kind of around the major grass creek area okay um and then um uh, eventually worked at, and physically was located in the field that was another thing that was kind of nice i like is, that yeah so my my head office or the regional office was in Cody, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I suppose at that point in time there were maybe two, three hundred employees of Marathon and Cody. Um, there were a bunch of old uh, Husky Oil properties that Marathon had bought. Oh, okay. And yeah, so um, they own the Husky building in Cody, and that's where the the headquarters were. But my office, I I had a company truck and. Um, at that point in time, a radio, because there really wasn't cell phones <laughs> just yet. We, we got them shortly after I started were out Were they the called field. walkie-talkies, or was this like a transistor? Um, they were bag phones, because oh, you carry... Oh, remember, remember those. Yeah, you remember those, uh, those briefcases that you For had the babies born out. in the 90s, Google it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was definitely not the uh, stick-it-in-your-pocket kind of phone that we have now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I... Uh, um, I worked out in the field. I, I worked there for probably, I guess it was about um, five years, a little over five years. And then um, I transferred to Lamar, Colorado, which mm-hmm. my headquarters were still in Cody, Wyoming. Yeah. Um, and uh, worked down in Lamar for about a, a year. Um, that was a nice location, too, as an engineer, because uh, th- there were just a few fields in Kansas and in, in Southwest Colorado, mm-hmm. but, um, they were all my fields. I, I was the production foreman. I was the yeah, engineer. I was about to ask exactly what you were doing because there's so few people you, you were mm-hmm. kind of doing it all from pumper to production engineer to foreman. Yep. So what yeah. does that all involve? Um, everything. I, I mean, it was kind of like operating your own field. Um, I like that idea. Yeah, it was actually it was kind of, <laughs> you know, you can't argue. My boss was 800 miles away. and um, I like that part, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had a phone call, you know, once a week with him. And, and uh, other than that, um, you know, I had a staff of, I guess, about five uh, people, one to help run the office and then some out in the field. And, uh, um, yeah, we just we handled everything ourselves. And so it was in, in, including landman type of operations. Um, oh, really? They wrapped that in there, too. Yeah. Well, most of the people that uh, we'd leased from actually still lived on their property. <gasps> so, you know, you, you go out and you're going to work on a well or whatnot. It's you Mississippi. S- <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> You, you stop by their house and have a cup of coffee yeah. in the morning and tell them what you're going to be doing that day. And, you know, because most people, they were pretty interested. You yeah, know, they, exactly. Yeah. So, so you I like it to, when they're interested. <laughs> um, yeah. It, you know, again, kind of maybe a little bit different day and age than, than some people um, now. But it, it was. It was. They were very curious and, and very supportive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they just wanted to know what was going on. So, so how long were you with Marathon? I was with them um, eight years almost to the day. Okay. And then, so, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so you were still doing the production thing. Yeah. So, you know, and that it's, it's funny to see how things have changed. Uh, my title was production engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I eventually, the last year I worked for him, I was titled as a reservoir engineer, but uh, seven of the eight years I was in production. Production at that point in time actually is what we consider production and completions now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you took, um, you took over when the well was drilled, you took over from that point 
really through the life of the well. The life of the um, well. Right. So mm-hmm. you did all the simulation But you were involved work. in the planning in terms of yep. the frac teams as well, which yeah. that's kind of one of the key components that's different. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. You know, it's it's it was all one. I mean, you, somebody had a production engineering card. They did fracs. They did acidizing. Yeah. They did, uh, you know, perf selection. So everything. after Marathon... Mm-hmm. What was <laughs> okay? Well, Tell us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I just personal goals, um, personal reasons. I'd always kind of decided I wanted a, a PhD, and okay. so um, I quit Marathon in 1998. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'd, I'd already been looking at grad schools and and looked at several different grad schools. Um, a couple of them, couple of them kind of rose to the top, and in, in Colorado School of Mines, kind of fit a lot of. A lot of different check marks for me just personally. because of the the mascot obviously yeah it was the mascot <laughs> it was absolutely the mascot <laughs> so i didn't have to change some of my uh, my gear so you came back did you already have your master's before you came back or you came back to get the master's and the phd came here? back to get the master's and the phd so um so what was that like working in the field for almost 10 years and then coming back to this <laughs> this conglomerate here <laughs> Um, to be honest with you, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> um, I feel I have great sympathy for anybody in that situation who's worked for a while and then goes back to grad school because there were definitely some tears shed there on homework problems and oh, not yeah. remembering how to do things, and it was it was pretty painful for a while. There are math problems that I used to be able to do. I don't think I would know where to start now. <laughs> yeah, when you when you haven't had differential equations for eight, nine years, and oh all of a God. sudden you have to, to do some of that. It was it was pretty rude You're like, awakening. what was I thinking? Yeah, that's, I quit. <laughs> there were many times that I thought that. What was I thinking when I gave up that paycheck to, exactly. to do this? Exactly, this paycheck made more sense mathematically. Right. But, okay, so you're here. So mm-hmm. what did you focus your PhD on? What was your dissertation? Okay, so my my master's, I worked on um, stress orientation in a, a field over on the Wyoming-Idaho thrust belt. And, uh, so I jumped into the geomechanics. Jumped into the <laughs> geomechanics, jumped into a bunch of log analysis. Um, my co-advisor was actually one of our geology professors. I had, I had co-advisors between petroleum and geology. And then um, it was just a natural progression to go into uh, the fracturing side of that. Mm-hmm. And so my, my dissertation was actually on hydraulic fracturing in thin-bedded um, sand and shale sequences. Oh, so how uh, progressive of yeah, you. <laughs> so it, actually, you know, it's kind of, again, it's good to be lucky sometimes because that was right about the time that shale plays and yeah. tight gas plays were starting to take off. Mm-hmm. And um, that describes a lot of the shale plays that we work in oh and, it does <laughs> yeah. so I was very focused on height containment and uh, that's that's uh, what my dissertation was was very much on and that's kind of what uh, well you know the rest so you is get history, the cords so. you get the hood and then you're like screw this I'm going back to industry um, <laughs> well yeah except uh, I think uh, another one of your your podcast interviewees convinced me that maybe I should stay and uh, teach Ramona. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> she has a wild way of convincing. <laughs> she has a wild way of convincing. Slash, you you wonder where you were convinced and where you were told. But um, I'm still fighting that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know, it, yeah. I it was interesting because when I did finish with my dissertation and I had been doing some um, teaching already at that point um, here at the school, uh, there was a, a position available um, that I was qualified for and so I um, interviewed for it and uh, 
uh, really started teaching right after I got my PhD. So is it, was this more of a research type position initially, or did you sort of work your way into more of the research? Because um, 110 papers yeah. don't happen on their own. Yeah, they don't. Um, and I actually think it's more than that. That's just where I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I stopped, too. I'm, yeah, that's, that's a lot to start counting. Um, it's funny to hear that number. Uh, <laughs> you know, research, yeah, it, it definitely does not happen overnight. Research is something that, especially a, a research program as a faculty member, you, you have to take time to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took, you know, it's it's most faculty members, you, you're looking at, a, you know, two to three years to start really getting some kind of momentum going. Because mm-hmm. um, if you think, especially when you, you get to publishing, because those first year, first year you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, second year you're actually doing it, and by that third year you're starting to publish and you're starting you're to like, work with grads. where are my students? <laughs> <Right>? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing, right? You're starting to work with grad students. Um, you're starting to get a, a, a pipeline, for lack of yeah. a better word, kind of, kind of uh, filled up with that. And, uh, you know, students are, they're, they're what makes the machine go. I mean, we are delightful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Most, <laughs> but <laughs> you always were. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, quite honestly, I mean, that's, that's to me and everybody has different opinions, but mm-hmm. to me, that's one of the best things about doing what I do is you get to work with students, you get to work with different people in different areas. And well, the fun. fact that you've kept one foot in academia and one foot in industry has also been a huge segue for the students. It helps us, you mm-hmm. know, move forward because Unfortunately, you don't always graduate with the jobs. So right. <laughs> you, need, you need a bridge of some form. But you yeah. then you started joining. When did you join BNA? Actually, um, so uh, I was so I taught full time here at Mines from uh, 2002 to to 15. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point in time, yeah, I, I think in my area, and again, this is just kind of a personal opinion, but. Um, my area, you, you can do research, but I think anybody that takes a look at my research realizes it's pretty applied. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so um, for me, sometimes uh, maybe a little ivory tower syndrome going on. I get a little separated from what's going on in the field. Um, so uh, going to work with uh, Berean Associates, uh, I, I didn't from uh, – uh, I, I'm sorry, I got those dates wrong. Um, for, from 13, so I was I was thinking I worked uh, I worked 2014, 15, and 16 um, uh, with Brian Associates. So it was a couple of years earlier than that. Sorry, uh, but yeah, I just you know it was just nice to kind of get back and actually work on physical projects and, mm-hmm. and just be an engineer again and kind of just see what some of the real problems are out there. So you were doing a lot of modeling then which is the mm-hmm. world that I am in now. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what you were doing, because you really helped bring frack modeling along. Well, I, you know, I, I, some. Um, there's definitely some people that, that are much better in that area and probably uh, laid a lot more groundwork than I did. Um, but I do, um, I do enjoy, again, from an applied standpoint. And I think there's, there's places where we can couple together uh, the modeling that we're doing with um, the research components. The, the other big gap that I see is uh, disciplinary. Um, we have a lot of people that work in completions, mm-hmm. and they do very well in completions, and we have a lot of people that work in reservoir, and they do really well in reservoir. <laughs> and never, never the two should meet. Yeah, that's um, a big problem. We're going to talk about that. Okay, yeah. I have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so when I was at Brian Associates, I, I did a, a lot of modeling um, 
a good good friend of mine says I love this saying all models are wrong some are useful and so when you do modeling it's that key of trying to take your experience and make sure that it's useful and that it's not just my being dad told random. me my job was voodoo so I understand <laughs> that statement gotta gotta love the newer technologies they're yeah. so fun <laughs> you know you can, anybody can hit a button on a computer being able to tell whether that you know that result is right or not is is a big key so well that goes into your research on advanced characterization mm -hmm. so can you tell me what advanced characterization actually means to you because I like to throw it around because I know what it means to me but right. <laughs> yeah that's, that's a good point a lot of different people treat those words differently um, to me, advanced characterization is, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, you can drop names, you can be controversial. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, it's, it's involving the geologist and maybe that's yes. controversial in some people's world. I don't know. Um, you got to You know, we can't forget that we produce from rocks and mm -hmm. you know, the math is great. The models are great, but if you don't bring in what the rocks are physically looking like, then who cares? I, I mean, quite <laughs> bluntly, it's it's um, understanding you know the depositional environment you're in, um, how that depositional environment might change your porosity, might change your directionality, your porosity, your your uh, mechanical properties. All of that starts with the rocks, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and, it, and it's a catch twenty two. There's you know yeah. models because we get paid through fluid, but right. we have to crack the rock. <laughs> but you have to crack the rock, right? You have to understand the rock, and and so, so I would to me the advanced characterization really starts with understanding the geology and been building from there. Well, I have a confession for you. Mm -hmm. So the other day I was cleaning up my computer, and. I never cheated because you can look at my GPA and know that I never cheated, but I totally found some of your old tests and exams from like 2010 on. And I was like, Oh my God, I got to delete these. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get caught. <laughs> I graduated three years ago, but I'm going to get caught. <laughs> you know, as a faculty member, you learn pretty quickly that you just, you just, Oh, they know are archived. That, they, they know are that archived. they're archived and, and they you are. just roll forward. <laughs> I knew people who used to go around to computers and if there was a jump drive left behind, they would just like snag it and run. Wow. And it's like, you never know what's on there. It could be someone's entire life on there, but still, oh my God, I don't know. It made me so nervous that I found those. <laughs> and good luck to the person that has time to go through Actually, all I'm that. selling them to the highest bidder. <laughs> okay. So I know... One of the most important things I think you have said, and you, you hear a lot of people go back to the fact, the evolution of the technical team. What does it actually mean to be a completions engineer? Because back in the day, and not that long ago, you did quote, I don't know, this Aristotle or something. You said, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it the appearance that it might be right. And we definitely see that in the world of completions and technical teams because everyone is looking for the secret sauce. We have the penny frack. That's not a real thing. We have, uh, was it high density pads? We have extreme entry, uh, limited entry. We have limited entry. We have more sand, more water. Now we have profitless fracks. And now we also are getting into discussions of parent-child uh, refracking. Does it actually work? Just a whole plethora of are we doing it right? Are we actually evolving? Because the reality is at any given time during 
uh, wellbore, you only have a few of the stages actually producing, or even some of the clusters aren't, there's only one cluster that's actually producing from the stage. So it's this evolution of, do we have it right? Where do we need to go? How do we fix it? So from your perspective, can you speak on that a bit more? Because everyone needs a secret sauce, but most of the time these technical teams are not actually technical. Yeah, so yeah, boy, that's a kitchen sink question. Sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, so I guess the first thing you hit, you, you used a term or, you know, knowing what's right. I, I think one of the things, first of all, that you kind of start off with is this term better. Um, you hear that a lot, like this well was better than that well, so we should do the same completion or... Or my neighbors got it figured out. Yeah, my neighbors <laughs> got it figured out. They have a better well. Um, so the first question, I guess, is you have to define is what is better. Um, you know, better is this. I mean, that's why I'm looking right. at you. Exactly. What is better? What is better? <laughs> well, it depends. So, and that's you know the perfect professor answer, right? Depends, but uh, but that's just it. Is it? It tends to be what's associated with your goals. Um, some people, you know, are driven by IP. So IP is better. Um, some people are driven by reserve recovery, so mm-hmm. reserve recovery is better. Some people are driven by maybe something in between, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and I would personally, I would argue that there it, prob- it probably is some place in between. It has a lot to do with net present value. You mm-hmm. know, do you put a hundred stages in a well and and go for IP, or do you put fifty stages in and go for UR? Well, maybe it's somewhere in between. Really understanding um, that scorpion curve. Yeah, and and that's the thing is is so much of our completions tend to be driven by non-reservoir factors. I know, Uh, right? Yeah. So reservoir is driven by non-reservoir factors, which is why I emphasized advanced characterization. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, and and it does go back to that, is to to completely, um, I I would argue, to completely and correctly design for well, um, you can't ignore the physics. Mm -mm. The physics have to be there. Um, there should be some gut checks on that. There should be some gut checks on the uh, geology that you're working in. And then, um, you know, designing for that particular treatment is going to, if, if you're designing for that treatment, uh, design for that very specific part of the reservoir, very specific area of the reservoir but some of the super majors they come up with a completions plan and they implement it over the course of two years it's not the reservoir driving it it's literally the economics so you're saying design for that part of the reservoir which quite frankly that's probably what needs to start happening down in the delaware parts of midland things like that because they they don't have it figured out but how how can someone be agile enough or how can a team be agile enough to actually design for the reservoir? So, so a few things, and, and I'll be the first to put the caveat on, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, I'm not paying the checks. So <laughs> the, you know, that, that's the thing is, is, you know, we're driven by um, logistics. We're driven by, um, I got the crew. I needed to go to the next well. I needed to get, you know, get, go to the next pad. Um, I got to turn them loose in, in three weeks. So, you know, time, time, time is a, is a big driver, um, supply of what you have, whether it's prop and whether it's fluids, a big driver. So, um, that kind of, uh, those details, I'm not making light of them by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, they are important, but they are sometimes very, um, contradictory to what the field needs. 
Um, and then the, the flip side of it is, is Mother Nature's kind of put us a little bit in a pickle on this too, because um, some of our designs, you won't know how well they worked or didn't work for several months, if not a, a year like or two. Like a year. Yeah. So, several months is just secondary closing. Come yeah, on now. Yep. It can be easily a, a year, two IPs, years. Talk right. to me after a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, right? Is, is it's a, it's a kicker on that because we might not know how right or wrong we were for a while. Um, and, by that point in time, how many more wells have you completed? A million. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I am, you know, and I am a big believer, though, in even if uh, we miss the target 100%, maybe we got 80%. But from a team standpoint, that's the other thing, too, is is lookbacks. I mean, and, and people use them in terms of, you know, reserves, mm-hmm. and, you know, look back, did we, did we hit our reserve target or not? I think you can look at lookbacks, too, as a... Um, as a, uh, how well did our, our treatment do or how well our, did our completion do? Mm-hmm. Um, again, that takes time. Um, so, you know, when I, I, I would hesitate to say that um, when I've consulted, a good portion of my consulting has been look backs mm-hmm. on, you know, whether wells did or didn't That's work and how to redesign. I work look backs um, constantly into competitor analysis when I'm hired by a team to walk in. Yeah. I always start with look backs, but I compare it to their benchmarks to see if their benchmarks are making sense against those look backs. So. Yeah. And that's the thing, right, is is you as an operator have all the information you looking at your competitor you you might (laughs) well you have a lot more than you do as your competitor so at least you have that advantage to maybe look at some of that in detail well talk to me about some of these buzzwords that are going on hammer analysis isip i mean the amount i know they come in out of popularity like every other quarter but people are trying to use them to predict uh, the future production of the well, how intense the frack needs to be, how much uh, they use them for competitor analysis, and yet they still keep coming up. They're still a big focus of a lot of technical teams doing research all over the globe. Nobody has really figured them out. So are we missing the point, or is this viable research for us? Um, I think it's viable research. I also think it's something that we have to be careful to put all the eggs in one basket kind of thing. I, I mean, so one of the first one of the first things I remember being taught in the world of vertical wells um, <laughs> was... What? Yeah, what those, are those? <laughs> would, you, would you believe those things go up and down, not just sideways? Um, that was how you were taught about, uh, and at that point in time, the, the term was completion efficiency. All it meant was how well were your perforations connected to your wellbore. I love all our buzzwords yeah, in this industry. Yeah, exactly. And so if you had a good, hard water hammer ring when you finished with an acid treatment or a frac treatment you were taught that um okay your perforations were well connected to your reservoir and and that was a good thing okay it's okay. yeah so you didn't have this um if you had a really really sharp shutdown and a sharp isip with some some water hammer in there um it just yeah it just simply meant that you had a good connection between uh, that there was no uh, pinching off in your perforations and that okay. you didn't have a slow bleed in your perforations. Immediately. Um, immediately. We know now that yeah. that happens <laughs> right. quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and, and we do, and in horizontal well, and so so that's the thing, right, is now we're in horizontal wells. Um, life is a lot more complicated in horizontal wells, right? Um, that's why I'm in, well, yeah. 
kind of employed. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, the perforating guns were developed for vertical wells and we're turning, you know, we're putting them in horizontal and, and kudos to the, the perforating companies. There's been a tremendous amount of R&D in the last, you know, couple of years, especially mm-hmm. to say, hey, let's take a step back and should we be doing something in, in the horizontal world? But the the danger that I see is reading too much into that ISI piece. So well, I feel like a lot of people are chasing the same rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And over at least the last two years, there hasn't been a lot of breakaway from what everyone seems to be researching. Yeah. So, so is there another rabbit hole to chase? <clears throat> is someone gonna? Is it gonna be up to academia, or is it gonna be up to the super majors? Um, I. Probably a little of both, to be honest with you, in that. And and the reason I, I say that is, you know, ISIP, so you've got 20 stages in a well, and you compare the different ISIPs, and people want to read reservoir quality into those or, mm-hmm. or, you know, behaviors, which is fine if all 20 of your connections between your well bores to your reservoirs were created equal. Mm. Um, but what, but we're assuming, so if you compare those, yeah, yeah, if you compare those, um, and say it's a reservoir quality, uh, then you are making that assumption that all clusters, all stages, all perforations are created equal. Well, we've got a lot of data that has showed us that that's not the case. Well, it Um, starts jacking up your fluid analysis from your fluid engineers, like your actual PVT and hitting your GOR and everything. Everything, exactly. So you're looking at reservoir, um, the reservoir components from a completion standpoint. We have a lot of fiber now and a lot of fiber data now that's showing us that um, all stages are not created equal Mm -hmm. and that all clusters are not created equal. Um, and so right there, that's kind of a fallacy to look from a, an ISIP standpoint to the reservoir. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, there's some value in, I've, I've seen some value in ISIP to look at that connection mm-hmm. to the reservoir. Um, how strong was your water hammer? How um, so a leak off was it? to give you an idea of, of were those clusters well-connected or not. So the answer to your question is how can somebody figure out if it's going to, if it, if it is to have some benefit, um, the right data set. Uh, having having uh, a fiber system or something that mm-hmm. gives you that detail, having maybe video or cameras that give you that detail, um, and then being able to say, okay, this is what our distribution between clusters was in a stage, this is what our distribution was, um, between even perforations, what erosion of perforations. Now when we separate that pinch point out, which is what our perfs are, mm-hmm. once we separate that pinch point out and take the good and the bad there, we might be able to characterize the water hammer to the, to the reservoir. Hmm. Well, I mean, this is all arguably why we are running into issues or seeing articles pop up that Wall Street investment banking is starting to turn it back to shell or private equity is having a harder time with exit strategies because people ignored the science for a long time and they went strictly off of, well, we're assuming this is going to be 300 foot half links and we've got this B factor and this DF and that's what we're going off of. And now we're realizing that you have to start like doing this analysis and working the science back into the economics. Yeah. And it's, it's becoming a 
a train I think it's a pivot or becoming a pivot in this industry. Yeah, I think you know, we've we've had the buzzword multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary teams for a very long time and And, and yet we, they don't talk to each other. Right. And and I think for us to be able to it, it probably you know, for us to be able to have the success that we really need to have in shale, it's it's needed. I mean, it, it sounds a little corny because, you know, everybody says, well, of course we need multidisciplinary teams. Well, yeah, in this case we do um, from start to finish. And, you know, it's it's hard mm-hmm. logistically, right? It, it, you know, you feel in a company people have other commitments. They, they have other things going they on. They have territory. They, well, yeah, they have territory. They have meetings to go to. They have, oh, um, <laughs> you know, multiple things to do. Um you know, that's that's one thing that I found as an engineer is I didn't, I wasn't, when I worked in industry, um, I was an engineer, but I won't say I did a lot of engineering. Well, business first, engineering second. Business and economics first, engineering second. So, everyone wants to know, because I did poll quite a few people, what do you think? is going to be the next big thing for completions because one of the things getting thrown around in some of your research mm-hmm. are waterless fracks, cryogenic fracks. So as a reservoir engineer who's been in industry for almost five years, what the hell is that? <laughs> Please, just start at the beginning. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so, you know, there's a couple of pushes for it, right? Can you even um, model that? Like, um, no, that? not really. I mean, <laughs> because... <laughs> yes, <laughs> job security. <laughs> job security. I, I mean, uh, I'll get in trouble with some people with that comment, but uh, yes and no, Um it is a, it's like any modeling. There's a mass balance. There's a momentum balance. But okay. in this case, there's a lot more energy balance. So And they're using CO2. Yeah, okay. CO2. And, so, and there's been discussion of nitrogen. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, right, yeah. it gets super cold. Right. So it's it's no secret. <laughs> I told a friend we were looking at cryogenic fracturing. And he looks at me like, like well, you're crazy because, yeah, it's kind of stupid. You hit rock with cryogenic fluids, and, yes, they do crack. That's not rocket science. <laughs> Um, not rocket science by any means. Um, Who is and, that from? Um, I'm not going <laughs> to name names. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, so cryogenic fluids, the benefits of them, of course, are you're not using water as much. And so, um, you know, people that have concerns or the public concerns about the use of water and, and uh, contamination and whatnot, um, some of those might go away. In fact, um, the research that I was involved in was a Department of Energy-funded study um, because they, they see some benefit mm-hmm. in um, waterless fracturing. Uh, it's been actually done somewhat in the industry. Um, Ooh. There was some uh, treatments pumped in the 80s. I believe. Everything fine happened in the 80s. I know. Well, you, yeah, bef- well, before 86 when the prices dropped. But, um, <laughs> we, yeah. we ignore that part of history. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> um, uh, they pumped cryogenic fluids into a well Uh um they actually uh, so now here's where the kicker comes is in a lab yeah i can pump cryogenic fluid right there on the rock but how do you deliver a cryogenic fluid from a wellhead through x thousands of feet of tubulars which can also crack Mm -hmm. okay um how do you model the or how do you keep the fluid in a cryogenic state yeah Right. So the treatments that they did do in the 80s, they used fiberglass um, tubulars. 
Okay. And uh, they worked. also, it seemed to work pretty well. And if I remember correctly, the um, they actually had a, a tubing within a tubing. So they had some. Um, uh, so almost like a casing. Uh, yeah. So almost a casing, but a um, insulation is what okay. it was. <clears throat> so they were running tubing that actually had insulation um, built into the tubing itself. So they had to have had temperature losses. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So not as effective on right. the surface as it was going to be downhole. Right. And so um, you, uh, yeah, and that that's the, uh, the thing is you're going to lose temperature. Um, you want to keep that expansion capability. So when the fluid does go from a liquid to a gas state, mm -hmm. um, that's where the energy, and that's actually where the modeling gets a little tricky mm -hmm. because it's very much a, a thermodynamics um, mass volume type of calculation as, okay, I pump this volume. Um, how does it expand when it gets into the reservoir? Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, on top of that, there's some... Um, the There's lights some. Went off again. <laughs> yeah, we're in one of those nice rooms to save energy. There it goes. Um, <laughs> See, the, environmental the carbon footprint. There we go. Yeah. You can't argue with us. <laughs> sit and sit in the dark many times, but uh, yeah, the there's some behaviors too that. Uh, uh, there's things called like Leidenfrost um, type of behaviors where I know it's without getting to when you drop cryogenic fluid, even if just like dry ice or something like that, and it starts to um, it, it doesn't want to uh, interact with the surface that it's on. It kind of, it's kind of like having a, a, a bubble that just kind of runs up and down on the table here mm -hmm. where um, it, you can't get it to um, actually uh, interact with the rock that you, so there's leak off issues mm -hmm. associated with it too. And then on top of all that, how do you transport profit? Well, y'all so. are moving towards profitless fracks, so <laughs> at least in some for some targets, some formations. So what did you say? What comes around comes around. Um, profit, yeah, profitless fracks. I pumped a couple in the 1990s. Dang, so, dude. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Why are these becoming more popular again? Because I know history repeats itself, but right. what is the driving factor? If it didn't work in the 80s when we had all this money and yeah. everybody was living on Wall Street, what's happening now? Again, it's kind of a trade-off. Okay. Um, it's economics-driven. Of course. So, right, yeah. So um, it's it's no different. Go back to the basics. You need conductivity. Um, cracking the rock is going to give you conductivity. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to put propin in there to actually have a higher permeable channel. It, it doesn't – it's not necessary. The thing is, is that – That's really only for, like, heaviers, right? Right. Like, right now, most people are chasing volatiles and, you know, mm -hmm. or at least some, some edge of the volatile. <laughs> and that conductivity will decline quicker. So there are some places, even here in, in Colorado, where companies are doing profitless fractures, but they're refracturing every six months. Okay. Exactly. And then there's the argument, does refracturing actually work? Because a lot of people are actually claiming that it's not refracturing an existing well. It's a fracture from a nearby well that fracks into it more yes. so. Um, so with and refracturing. And then you mess with my declines. Yeah, then, oh, yeah. Then you really mess with the declines. Um, refracturing takes shape in a lot of different ways. So refracturing 40 years ago was generally because your conductivity had degraded to a point that you needed to replace conductivity. Mm -hmm. um, we started to realize, and this had been theoretically kind of tossed around, um, but we started to realize when we got microseismic and tilt meters that we were actually seeing reorientation of fractures. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so fracks were growing in different directions. Um, the third reason is usually refracturing uh, where the tr original treatment didn't actually treat the rocks. So that's probably where we are in the horizontal <laughs> world. We call them refracts, but it's we're just... refracts. Yeah, it's, we're refracturing the well, but we're actually newly fracturing some parts of the rock. Yeah, so that's kind of a lump turn that actually probably covers a lot of different things. Again, these buzzwords that people like to hear, and it's all for it's all for the funding, but the funding is becoming more precarious. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> well, it's like you know, even slick water. Um, That's my secret sauce. Yeah, I believe fully working with all these companies that I have. I believe that the true secret sauce is water. Is water. <laughs> Slick water. It, it is, and we were pumping water river fracks in the 1950s. So, okay, know. so for all the environmentalists, it's okay. <laughs> Let me just throw that. The disclaimer is that is fine. <laughs> we And we're really good at reusing water now, too. Oh, we are. We mm -hmm. can take care of just about everything. Mm -hmm. Well, um, is there anything else that you, having your foot in, you know, both arenas. What do you think outside of uh, this waterless fracks might become the next big thing? What should people, what's exciting you in industry right now? Because mm. we're in a volatile time and innovation comes with <clears throat> volatility. So, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I've quoted you on that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, my big bandwagon right now is um, fiber optics. In what way? Uh, so, fiber is. When you look at distributed fiber technology and our ability to see strain and acoustics and temperature, um, it's giving us the potential for, uh, instead of having one discrete measurements, you know, one, one point in the reservoir, mm -hmm. now you can have measurements that are thousands of feet, miles long, where we can more so we're actually doing a dfn we're proving if an srv is real we're 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 seeing you know you put a you put a fiber in one well and you you frack offset wells and you can actually see the fracture growing to you you can see oh, the so fracture cool. crossing that well bore um and, and this is all applied like this is happening in industry right it's now. happening in industry it's it's happening um yeah it's very much happening in industry and there's there's definitely some research projects going on we're we're putting a fiber loop in, in the mine that we own, um, Colorado oh, School of Mines owns Edgar. a mine. So, yep, we're putting, <gasps> a, we're putting a fiber uh, instrumented well up in Edgar Mines. So Coolest place to be able ever. to look, yeah, <laughs> to be able to look. And, and so maybe for the first time, I, I don't know, you know, we can see three-dimensional behaviors in our reservoir that'll being re able revolutionize to see. modeling efforts absolutely that's going to get rid of all the voodoo yeah. i've been accused yep. of yes see <laughs> yes i love that well you obviously have your hands full you've got how many students are in petroleum now um oh my goodness uh we've probably between grad and undergrad we've got maybe 400 oh my god 450 yeah those are so many opinions <laughs> Yes, yes, there are. So, and you were also email, emailing me at 5 a.m. this morning. So mm -hmm. can you please, for all of us out there that are trying to become more productive, create better schedules, and honestly figure out a more strategic way to get ahead, because that's the end game for almost everyone in industry. I don't care if you're an engineer or a geoscientist or what have you. What is your day-to-day -day from wake up? What time do you wake up? What do you do to stay organized and to keep your foot in both worlds, industry and academia, and not mm -hmm. pull your hair out and not adopt 27 cats? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so 
Uh, wow. Um, so <laughs> Do you one, have 27 cats? Yeah, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> I have a few, but not that many. A um, few horses, few dogs. Uh, the so one of the great things about being a professor mm-hmm. is every day is different. Yes. I mean, it really is. I've heard that. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, you kind of wake up in the morning. It's kind of like, wow, what's what's today going to bring? Um, for me, it's it's being organized. Um, uh, I have to be very organized in the sense that I do keep a lot of lists. Um, you know, I write I things down. Method. Priorities. Priorities. Um, I, you know, I, I think email is the bane of my existence right now. I'm sure it is of many other people, but, <laughs> um, you know, I try, try not to let the email get too backed up because then that's, and, and some people say you should wait till the end of the day or whatnot. But I find that if I, if I sit down every few hours and, and knock out a few, mm-hmm. then they're not all waiting for me at the end of the day. Um, I, used to think I multitasked very good. I find that that's probably a fallacy of many, you know, <laughs> I, I don't. Um, so I guess what I'm saying there is I try and focus on what I'm doing at that point in time, mm-hmm. even if I've got 50 other things that I know are coming at me. Because if I focus on it at that point in time, I do things a lot more efficiently mm-hmm. and the quality is higher and I get it done quicker instead of having it just kind of. What time do you wake up? Like for um, real, uh, for real, <laughs> usually about um, somewhere somewhere around five o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Do you yeah. have a morning routine that you do to start your day? Um, yeah. So get up, cup of coffee, answer some emails, just uh-huh. anything that's critical to you know get out of the way. And that doesn't like get your stress going. Oh, it completely gets my stress oh. going. Um, but that's so at that point in time, then I go get on a treadmill or oh, a bike. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so you get you get the stress out of the way, yeah. right? Um, that's the yep. best way to handle stress in this industry is to find an exercise. You have got to find exercise. And, and I've made that mistake before of, you know, letting that not be a priority. So, you know, in the day to day, um, that's gotta be a priority too. It, it, it absolutely has to be a priority just to get some, how do you wind down a uh, glass of wine? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, go out, have dinner with friends. Um, I try and put the computer away. As oh, much as see, I can. No, yeah. I, that's why I have it on my wrist now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, so, you know, I'm I'm one of those people that um, holding the, out <laughs> the the computer, the iPad, the iPhone stays out in the kitchen, and when I, you know, when I go to bed, there's no TV, there's nothing. I, because it just again, it's that compartmentalization. It's. Are you, you a know, reader? I am a reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am a reader, um, and that's something I enjoy too. Is I read so many technical things during the day that I read a lot of fluff stuff at night. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of non-fiction, uh, you know, just... Daily just, Mail. Yeah. I mean, not really. But <laughs> celebrity gossip. <laughs> celebrity gossip. No, not a big celebrity gossip. No, no. Troll Facebook. <laughs> yeah. No, but don't even, I don't even really like that, but... <laughs> I, uh, we live very different lives. We live very different <laughs> lives. I really like that paperback, you know, book that I don't know the spy novel. Just go read it. Oh so. yeah, I'm a big fan of murder. I, anything murder. <laughs> yeah. But that probably mystery. Says, I'm gonna say mystery. It's probably why I'm single. So. <laughs> I, was say, I won't comment on that. <laughs> well, do you have a book, podcast, other resource that you would recommend that? has brought some benefit to you that you think would bring benefit to others? 
Yeah, so I'm, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of it, but I, I'm a big believer in the moral case for fossil fuels. I love yeah. that book. I downloaded it on Audible and listened to it in one day. Yeah, um, you know, Epstein is just, he just makes so many good points. And, and I think that's just it. You, we're in a society where people either want to love fossil fuels or they absolutely want to hate them. And mm-hmm. you, they're an everyday part of our life. And they, the quality of life and the quality of living that many of us enjoy, they are a key to that. And so I'm a firm believer that there's, you know, there's, there's room for everything and it's just finding balance. Well, he's definitely someone I want to get on the podcast soon. But uh, what I've noticed, especially in the Twitter, Twitter sphere mm-hmm. <laughs> lately, is because we're about to enter a new election year, the claims of climate uh, denier are coming back up and he's been kind of active being like I'm not a climate denier so when you hear that being in industry and knowing the good works that he's pushing forward what do you say to those that claim climate denier even I mean he could scream it till he's blue in the face you know I I guess I've learned and and being somebody who specializes in hydraulic fracturing you are no you know you're you're a target for a lot of public opinion Mm -hmm. um there is 10, 20% of the population out there that you are never, ever going to change their opinion. Oh, I agree. Yep. And you're not going to change their opinion. And unfortunately, um, they tend to be some of the louder opinions. Mm-hmm. And those are probably the ones that are calling him out, would be my guess. Um, what I've found is that you should try and work with the other 80% out there that mm-hmm. maybe do not, you know, that, that really are open a little bit to maybe learning or maybe understanding or, or not as locked in, who really say, you know what, I, I don't know, um, I'd like to learn more. And uh, I love those people. You know, yeah, you know, and those those are the people that you, you know, you, you focus your energy and your efforts on because you, banging your head against the wall doesn't make it a drum, right? So <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, I think I got that from Dilbert at one point in time. So. <laughs> Dilbert. Yeah. Well, Dr. Miss Gibbons, thank you so much for joining today's podcast. You have given us so much knowledge, so much insight, and so much of what's to come. I really hope uh, we get you back on in the future, get your gift of foresight, and see what's happening. But thank you so much. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. What did you think about Miss Gibbons' story? She's such a boss. Calls it like it is. Makes it actionable. Just, just an absolute wealth of knowledge. If any of you have any thoughts or questions for Jennifer, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know, and we will be sure to get Miss Gimmons back on in the future to get more of her insights and to answer your questions. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us by Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.